from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Do you know what this is? We're hearing a wonderfully odd record from 1953 called Strange to Your Ears. It's a guy named Jim Fassett. The source of that sound is perfectly familiar to everyone. But you don't recognize it now because it's three times lower in pitch than you ordinarily hear it. See how soon it will dawn on you what it is. Fassett, it turns out, was a pioneer in what we came to call experimental music. Every sound in this musical composition, every note, chord, background, solo, every sound and every combination of sounds was emitted originally from the throats of birds. In 1960, using field recordings of birdsong, he made his best-known work, The Symphony of Birds. More than half a century later, we are still taking all kinds of sounds and using them in ways that can be beautiful and scary and fun and mysterious. And today on Studio 360, we are looking at today's sound pioneers, like one who takes everyday objects and sonically morphs them into the sound of a galaxy far, far away. The lightsaber was the very first sound I made for Star Wars, oddly enough. Ben Burt is a sound designer, a living legend in Hollywood. He has won four Oscars for his work on movies such as... E.T. And the Indiana Jones series. And he created some of the most famous movie sound effects in history as the sound designer for Star Wars. You can hear it in the robots... The very large hairy mammals. And the bad guys. I really don't think there's any cinematic sound as recognizable as the lightsaber. I was a projectionist at the time at the USC Cinema Department, and I went back, and there was a motor in the projectors there that made a wonderful hum. It was a sort of musical hum. And I thought, well, that sounds like a lightsaber to me. So I recorded that sound. It, it didn't sound quite dangerous enough to me. And I was uh, doing some other recording in my apartment. I had a broken microphone cable, which when I carried the mic past the television set, it picked up hum from the TV picture tube, just as the kind of thing you normally would not want in your recording. Uh-huh. You'd reject it. But I said, oh, that's, that hum sounds dangerous. And the two together became the basic lightsaber sound. To get the motion in there, I, I played the sound over some speakers and then re-recorded it with another microphone 
by waving the microphone in the air around to get the Doppler effect of the motion of the swords. And that's basically how it was born. You see? You can do it. I call it luck. In my experience, there's no such thing as luck. Now, a few weeks later, uh, I was hiking with my family, and we were hiking under a guy wire at the top of a ridge in the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania, and the pack frame caught on one of the wires and plucked it. And uh, I said, wow, that's, that sounds like a laser gun. I struck it with pieces of metal and a wrench and a wedding ring and various things, and out of that came the basic sound for all the blasters in Star Wars. These days, do, do things like that, actual electromechanical noises, play as much a role in this digital age as they did 30-odd years ago? And despite the digital age, I still emphasize field recording and real physical objects. I think that the audience, even if they can't identify a sound, they associate with those sounds some kind of reality. And so we hear lots of things only through the medium of motion pictures. Uh, things like thunder or a face punch. And they may not sound at all like those things in real life. When I finished uh, Revenge of the Sith after uh, 29 years and 10 months of Star Wars, I, one of the things I was relieved about was ah, no more alien voices or robots because they're hard to do. But a short time after finishing, I was invited over to Pixar where I listened to a pitch by Andrew Stanton, the writer-director of WALL-E. Wow. I hesitated just a little, but then I realized, oh, this is such a charming, fun movie. I, how can I say no? This is WALL-E, a typical day at work, and he's a trash compactor, so one of the sounds you hear is the sound of a car being crushed, uh, recorded at a demolition yard. Wally's voice uh, starts with my voice and is highly processed. As soon as Wally comes on the screen, one thinks, oh, it's some relative in some fashion of R2-D2. Well, there, there are very few prominent robots in movie history. <laughs> yeah. that, uh, you know, we've got Robbie the Robot, which I loved as a kid, and mo most robots spoke with a uh, conventional human voice. That is correct, sir. I am monitored to respond to the name Robbie. But with Star Wars, there were so many opportunities there to develop and go down some new pathways. The successful voices have been those that always uh, had in them a disguised human voice, what I call a soul. The trick has always been to blend the two, to have uh, an electronic or machine-like character. Here we hear Mo. He's a little cleaning scrubber robot. And... Uh, his prominent feature is a little cleaning brush, which is my electric shaver from home. <laughs> His uh, little voice is a sped-up version of me doing sounds I might have made in third grade class and gotten punished for it, but now I can get paid for it. There's the sound of a little cyclone whistle. You blow on it, and that's the sound of his little trackball motor as he zooms back and forth. If you wouldn't mind, we thought it might be fun to play some sounds and and given your incredible expertise, see if you can say what those are. <laughs> okay, I'll take on that challenge. All the right. sound effects challenge. Exactly. Okay. Name that sound. Well, I believe that's the... Uh, 
the creature in the trash masher, is it not? From Star Wars. It certainly sounds like Yes, it is. Trash compactor water beast? Uh, a lot of that is just me in an echo chamber. Really? You know? Yeah, just, just weird. You know, if you play things backwards and kind of create weird downbeats to sounds. Uh-huh. I'm going to test my, my memory here. One for one. I can't remember all these things. Uh-oh. What's next? All right. Well, this is the, uh, the Snow Walkers from Empire Strikes Back, recordings that were made at a metal shearing company. And it was a place that has big stampers that beat pieces of metal into various components. And that was used for the, the walkers' footsteps. Although the squeaky part of it was actually the dumpster lid of a dumpster in front of my house. Really? I went out to fill some trash in it one day. That became the sort of squeaky kneecap of the, of the snow walkers. Could work. Um, here's another sound. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Ben Burt, this is your life. No, my gosh. No, that's... I don't think I had any connection with it. You Should have to I tell, tell you? That one. Yeah. Howard the Duck. <laughs> oh, no, I had some connection with it. Well, see, that's been erased from my memory bank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's Leah Thompson. But you did Let's it. hear it again. I've got to remember what it is now, now that you clued me in. What? What? what happened? How the hell did you do that? My powers are growing. Yeah, right. It's, Sorry. It's, it's actually when, when Dr. Jennings shoots lasers out of his eyes. At the oh, diner. Yeah. Okay. No, I, remember, I remember doing the tongue sound for that movie, and that was uh, dragging an empty garden hose across the front patio. You got a kind of a kind of sound. Well, here's, here's a final sound. Okay. <laughs> now, gee, is that from The Incredibles? I'm no, not sure. older. No. It's not something I would have done. That wasn't well handled, that one. There's one part in there. I wouldn't have done it that way. I could hear the speed variation on whatever tone was going, whatever motor. Did I do it? You did. <laughs> Death, Race oh, th- Death Race 2000. Oh, no! Well, that's... Oh, jeez. <laughs> well... Okay. 1975, sound of... Drivers swerving to hit pedestrians. Frankenstein scores! <laughs> oh, that is, you've got, it's unfair. That's going into someone's private basement right. attic. Death Race 2000. Well, I don't think my name was on the picture, so maybe I can't officially remember it, but there I made, go. that was the first film I ever made sound effects for, and I learned a lot on Death Race. So it was a fun experience. Well, you did so well on the other ones. I, 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 I'm happy that we could play some of your own work yeah. that you didn't recognize. Is there... <laughs> is there a movie that you, you didn't do the sound design on that you regard as that's the one, that's the great one? Uh, of course, I love the th- things I grew up with, uh-huh. Forbidden Planet and uh-huh. War of the Worlds and later 2001 and the sure. fact that it's a film with almost no sound and that's what gives it such power. It's very minimalistic. My favorite sound effect is, well, the arrow from The Adventures of Robin Hood, 1938. <laughs> something that just struck me as a kid and I loved that sound because I, I couldn't go outside and fire my own little toy bow and arrow and it wouldn't sound anything <laughs> like the one in the movie. Yeah, and, yes. He split Philip's arrow. Is there beyond that just a sound in the world that my God, I love that sound? 
as a child, I remember playing with my grandfather's shortwave ham radio set in the blisteringly hot attic of his Ohio home. And I loved tuning between stations and listening to all the tones and beeps and whistles and static. And often I will do that now today. I will just turn on a shortwave radio, put it next to the bed and mistune it somehow so I'm really not hearing any station directly. There's something about that that I find it opens my mind as I find it a very a peace and an excitement at the same time. So I guess that's probably something that universally for me uh, I'm always um, going back to. Ben Burt, thank you very much for coming in today. You're welcome. Sound designer Ben Burt. His latest feature film was Star Wars The Force Awakens, four decades after he created the soundscape for the original. When I was a little kid, I remember loving another movie with a major robot character, The Day the Earth Stood Still. And that sound, back in my childhood in the 1960s, until Brian Wilson used it in Good Vibrations, that sound was the sonic signifier of sci-fi. An instrument called the theremin is one of the earliest electronic instruments invented in the 1920s. And it's not just the sound that's singular, so's the way you play it. It's just this box with a couple of antennae sticking out. You don't even touch it. I have played the piano, the trumpet, the French horn, the ukulele, but I realized there was a hole in my instrumental repertoire. I realized I needed a theremin lesson. Um, why don't you come over here okay. and we'll talk for a while and then we'll get back up. Or why don't you skip over here, actually, as you just did. So we invited the virtuoso Pamela Stickney into Studio 360. Here is a track off her album, Thinking Out Loud. The great late synthesizer pioneer Bob Moog was also a theremin maker, and he took notice of Pamela. He called her one of the most important innovators of the theremin living today. Why do you think he said that about you? Is it because you are the greatest living thereminist, uh, or, or because there are so few of you out there? Uh, well, there are, there are many people playing it. Uh, even every year, it seems like there, it exponentially grows because uh, you know people get introduced to it and... And usually once you see it and understand what's going on, it, it, everybody wants to try it and get one. And, ah, and so there are a lot of them out there now. When I first began in L.A., I couldn't find a theremin at all, and that was 12 years ago. And there was only one of those really antique collectible ones for like 10 grand, and I thought, oh, I'm not going to buy that just to try it. <laughs> and so did you find a place where you could go try it out? No, there was an RCA, very old one that was for sale back in that time in L.A., and that was the only one. So I ended up having to buy one. Really? Just to be able to try it. Well, that sort of, that sort of committed you right off the bat a little bit, huh? Well, well, it's weird because the sad thing, well, not sad, it's kind of funny. It's like if you own a theremin, you're a thereminist, basically. Turns out it now costs only a few hundred dollars to get a basic consumer model, but I wasn't quite ready to jump in, not without that lesson that I'd been promised. Okay, um, so if you move your right hand 
towards Whoa. and away from the pitch antenna. And let me calibrate it so we get more okay. range. Yeah. And now if you move your right hand up. And actually, if you go in this direction... People might just get stoned and do this. I think people get stoned from doing <laughs> this. <laughs> if, you, if you move your hand up as if um, you're holding a microphone, yeah, then you can move towards and away from the antenna. Now, now. So now I'm moving my hand from my body slowly toward the antenna. Yeah, you can go all the way if you want. You can hear how wide closer the range is. Closer and closer and closer. It's so interesting for me watching you play the theremin. I remember the first time I saw someone do it live, I thought, wait, this is a joke. They're not actually playing. This, there, there's Because your fingers and hands aren't touching anything, it, at first glance, it almost seems as though you're miming their performance. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's happened many times where people thought I was like doing some performance art thing where I was just moving my hands, especially if I'm playing with a band and there's a whole bunch of people on stage and people might not know what is doing what sound after a while and it's you know it's like well there's someone maybe playing a violin or uh, I don't know but then what is she doing there <laughs> basically and and and, 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 and this theremin unlike the ones probably people have seen which are antiques is a very modern uh, you know fancy glammy looking instrument yeah. um, with a sort of curved antenna going off horizontally on one side and then a, a, a an absolutely vertical antenna on the other side it's like no other instrument. It's like this whole sort of alien version of well, musical instrument. Well, what's really amazing about it is that um, for being one of the first electronic musical instruments, um, this instrument wasn't designed to take after anything else. It, we have no tactile references except for except for touching your own hands, possibly. There's no it, fret. There's no keyboard. There's yeah, there's, no, yeah. yeah, it's all in the air, and it's all based on, like, relativity really if you shift the weight of your body onto like you know your heels even though you don't move your feet you can recalibrate the theremin tell me what to okay. do okay so don't think of your pitch hand as going sideways you know what i think of if you're inside of like a really gummy gooey like slushy kind of it's uh -huh. an optical illusion because it looks like my volume is going up. After a Sometimes. very brief lesson, I thought I was maybe ready to tackle my first tune. See if you possibly recognize it. There, that sounds just like Mary Had a Little Lamb. Yeah. So, so, but, okay. Pamela tried to make me feel a little bit better about my pathetic attempt. It's not even a hundred years old, this instrument, and you know, maybe in two, three hundred years it'll be someone that's like a Paganini that comes up to it and revolutionizes, you know, like a whole new way to play it. Now, before I let you go, can you play some maybe recognizable piece of music, but something that to show your virtuosity? <laughs> Virtuosity, I have no idea. I'll try and figure out something okay. to play, a, like, a, yeah, just solo very quickly, something. Cool.
Later this month, Pamela Estekney will debut her new work for Theremin, commissioned by John Zorn, called Peripheral Vision Escape Routes. And there is a video of my little Theremin debut on our website at pri.org slash studio360. And by the way, the consensus these days is that it was not technically a theremin used in the Beach Boys' Good Vibrations, but instead a similar instrument designed to sound like one. Coming up, the many moods of a radiator. This one's getting a little bit higher. It is. There's a tinge of hysteria (laughs) to that. Henry Alford turns the sound of heat into the sound of music. That's next in Studio 360. That's a radiator in my apartment. It's like I'm living at a dry cleaner's. Or like I'm just about to receive a telegram telling me the war is over. That is the writer Henry Alford, who's also speaking to today's theme of turning improbable sounds into art. Recently, it occurred to me that other people must have the same problem. I thought, what if I recorded the sounds of their radiators and added them to the sounds of mine? Maybe I could piece them together into a kind of a musical composition. Because a noisy radiator is a kick in the head, but a piece of music is a joy forever. Nervously entering these new waters, I'm just a writer after all, I sent out an email to hundreds of people. Two radiators that sounded really amazing, presented themselves. The first belonged to a woman who does customer relations for a coffee company out of her apartment in Manhattan. Hi, I'm Erin Meister, and this is my radiator. Like me, Meister had clearly been spending a lot of time thinking about her radiator. I hear a lot of sort of overtones in it, and it reminds me a little bit of throat singing. So I like to sort of imagine the clanging as a percussive. I next visited Todd Prusan, a magazine editor who lives in a cozy three-story house in Maplewood, New Jersey. Because he lives in a house, Prusan has a relationship to his radiator that's a little different from my own. You've got a thermostat, so you, you're actually controlling. Right, I conduct the music. Right. Prusan turned his thermostat up, and we pulled chairs up to his dining room radiator and lay in wait. It was like we were on safari. There's something. There's something, yeah. It could be stage fright. I think so. I think that was the first paw coming out of the cave. Then we moved on to radiators in other rooms of Prusan's house. I think it's okay, but can you come close? Um, so this is kind of a nice hiss you've got going here. Right. This is the wild-spotted radiator of New Jersey. Um, this one sounds a bit more like crickets. 
When Bruzan cranked the thermostat even higher, he got a different sound. This one's getting a little bit higher. It is. There's a tinge of hysteria <laughs> to that. With the help of a sound engineer from Studio 360, I mixed together the most musical bits from Meister's and Prusan's Seven Radiators with the ones from My Three. I feel like we need something more here. Creating a two-minute-long composition. Like tapping, but oh, that is harsh. Mm-hmm. That tea kettle. So maybe start with this banging. Yeah, I yeah, because I, this one's a little more staccato than the first one. Yeah, it's kind of cool with them, one on top of the other. Mm-hmm. Yes. I liked it. But what would other people think? Anxious for professional assessment, I took the piece to a classical music expert, Fred Plotkin, who's lectured for the Metropolitan Opera and is the author of Classical Music 101. Um, so essentially what this is is... 10 radiators Mm -hmm. that I have visited and recorded, and then I've put them together Mm -hmm. into a kind of compilation. Okay, shall we have a little music? Yes, have a blast. Okay. What do you think? To me, this is a pastoral symphony. It's a very short symphony that was very harmonic. There was nothing jarring. It all seemed to be of a piece and of nature. And I, I really thought of Mahler. I thought of Beethoven. I thought of anyone who evokes natural settings. And to me, it was not only not jarring, but it was quite calming. I was thinking that you might invoke the operatic idiom verismo because it is its depictions of contemporary everyday life and sometimes when I hear my radiator I think Renata Tabaldi She would not be pleased to hear that wherever she is she would turn off your heat right away To my amazement Plotkin asked to hear the piece a second time. This time he had a different interpretation. Um, Actually, the second hearing, I had a very different response. Mussorgsky's picture is at an exhibition. There's a section about chickens and hens and other little birds. And suddenly this sounded to me like a very short tone poem, The Life Cycle of a Chicken. The pecking to get out of the egg and popping its head up all of a sudden and experiencing the world and... Beethoven, Mazorsky, chickens. This was really heady stuff. My brain started spinning. And what kind of life can I expect to lead as an avant-garde musician? I'm imagining that it's a lot of grant applications and layovers at the Rotterdam airport. Well, the Rotterdam Symphony, if you could get your music performed by the Rotterdam Symphony, is pretty good. 
But I have a key question for you. Are you going to record the radiator or travel with the radiator? It's a very important distinction. Oh, my God. You mean people might expect me to bring my they radiator? Want the live musician. You know, when, when we go to see films with Flipper or Lassie, we don't want to meet the owner. We want to meet Flipper and Lassie. It's the same thing here. So in the end, I felt highly flattered by Plotkin's enthusiasm, but at the same time, slightly crippled by all the practical concerns he'd brought up. Yes, I've got my eye set on Rotterdam, but I'm not really looking forward to getting a radiator, let alone 10 of them, through customs. Nevertheless, I'm more convinced than ever of the potential power of art and its consolations. Where there's hissing, there's fire. I think this hysteria is slowly turning to resignation. I'm hearing that Mm -hmm. also. But there's hope to it, too, I think. There's a little hope in there. I was on a residency in Trinidad last August. This is artist Nina Kachadurian. And took a trip to the North Coast, which is a really beautiful kind of jungly area, and was taking a hike there when I heard a bird that seemed extremely familiar to me. And I stood there listening to it and wondered, why do I know this bird? I don't know very much about birds. I don't know why I think I know this bird. And then it dawned on me that, that the pattern of the bird song was exactly like one of the parts of that car alarm sound that I hear all the time in New York City. I did a lot of experiments with repeating parts of a bird call or um, sequencing things in a way that would make people think alarm. One of the exotic birds, for example, is one called the Great Potu, which comes from Central and South America. There's one I've used in one of the soundtracks called the Ivory-Billed Woodpecker, which is thought to be extinct, but... It's, it's a little bit unclear, and sometimes there have been reports of having heard them but not seen them. Each of my three cars plays a unique alarm. Um, and so the three cars will be there. They'll be parked on the street near various museums or art institutions. And when people walk by them, like with a real car alarm, they'll sometimes trigger it without knowing it, and the cars will start shrieking and chirping and doing their thing. I want them to be loud. I want them to be a little bit intrusive. I want them to surprise you. I want them to sometimes go off without you knowing that you've done anything. I mean, I'm sure we've all had that experience of walking by a car and the car starts to scream at you and you think, what did I do? Um, I want those things to happen. I'm not really interested in this project being something that's about um, a sort of soothing, beautiful nature sound experience. I think it's more interesting to think about the ways that sometimes unpleasant sounds 
might have something interesting hidden in them. I want these lines to be a little bit blurry. I want the whole thing to, the sound experience to be sort of a slippery one. That was artist Nina Kachadorian and her car alarms. Tanya Katengian produced our story. And before that, you heard writer Henry Alford. You can listen to his full radiator composition, produced with Pike Malinowski, at pri.org slash studio360. And in June, you can get a copy of Henry's brand new book. It's called And Then We Danced, A Voyage into the Groove. You hear those clicks and pings? Beer cans. And the scraping, shuffling sounds in there? Those are coming from a video game controller. Today, we're looking at how unexpected sounds get turned into unexpected art. And this is the music of the groups Matmos and So Percussion, who collaborated in 2010 on an album called Treasure State. Hard to believe, maybe, but Treasure State actually gets catchy, almost like dance music. By themselves, the groups don't sound much alike. Matmos is electronica, so percussion is mainly people banging on drums and other instruments. But Drew Daniel of Matmos and Jason Truding of So Percussion told me about their common ground. Actually, we share, I guess, a certain love of creating music out of objects, out of ready-to-hand things. I knew about So Percussion's uh, recordings of David Lang that featured playing things like uh, teacups, I believe. And, uh, you know, they were aware of our work. Yeah, it was very much just a kind of fan call to say, hey, man, I would love to make music with you guys. So it wasn't a blind date. You, you, you kind of knew each other and wanted to go yeah, out. Yeah, I, I had been, I'd reviewed their record for the, the radio station, uh, KALX, so that there had been some, some slobber that we'd each, you know, generated for gotcha. each other. So you're going to first play the song Needles off of this album, Treasure State. Um, what's making the sounds that we're going to hear in this song? What you'll hear will be a movement from an organic object, a cactus, into electronic process. Oh, that old cliche, the yeah, cactus, your butt. tiredest, <laughs> modernist gesture there is. It was their idea to work with the cactus because you'd been playing a Cage piece. Yeah, it's, it's kind of very much a, a shout-out to John Cage. He, he wrote a piece um, called Child of Tree um, specifically for amplified plant material. I mean, John Cage is kind of your mutual godfather in Ab- some sense. Certainly. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And how, does that, how do you play a cactus, and how do you figure out how to play a cactus? You start by touching those spines, and you notice that when you pluck each one, it has a slightly different pitch. And then the question is, how do you turn that into something loud enough to make music out of? And that's where um, we're, we supplied the sows with a Barkus Berry planar wave transducer, which is a So very, this isn't an acoustic cactus? Not you're doing this is an electroacoustic <laughs> cactus, <laughs> yeah. Cactus, yeah. And it turns out the first cactus we used, Murray, may he rest in peace, uh, was in B-flat when we, we did a lot of sampling and, and kind of really? uh, improvising. Yeah. So the chords you'll hear actually come from the cactus. They're enhanced in many ways, but um, and this kind guy, of live in, this in guy's flat. name is does he have a name as well? This is uh, Arlen. Yeah, Arlen, yeah. Uh, 
are here on Earth talking to Matmos and So Percussion. I have so many questions having watched you do that. First of all, there were four of you at once at a, for a length of time playing the cactus. And and I saw an injury briefly on uh, one of the cactus needles. Kurt, Kurt, shh. That's, I know. You know. I'm ruining the magic, man. I know. Um <laughs> Uh, how improvised is the is the picking at the cactus? There's a little of both. You know, Josh started off the piece and it was very much uh, improvised. Yeah, basically, there's a, a sort of relay race structure where it goes from improvisation to composition to electronic manipulation and it's sort of an endless remix. Drew and, and Martin are just a master of uh, taking interesting sounds and plugging them into something uh, rhythmic where we're coming from. So that, that was kind like, of that, what that was like. We're like cave people in the sense that we don't really understand notes and chords and the sort of structures of, of notated music that, you know, Jason's training gives him access to. So I think we complement each other. We He's the person from the future and you're the cave people? Is that Yeah, so? basically. The Flintstones and George Jetson actually maybe is what it <laughs> nice. is. Nice. There you go. Uh, did you know there were only 24 Jetsons episodes in all? Wow. Whoa. Isn't that a shocking fact? That's really odd. I, I mean, feel like I've seen more than 24. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Well, Shakespeare only has 36 plays, but, you know, it's strange that we feel this sort of paucity <laughs> yes, of exactly. the void where Jetson's yeah. episodes ought to be. Meet Henry V. <laughs> um, now, uh, the next song you're going to play is Water off of this album, Treasure State. Tell me how that came to be or what people should be prepared for or should they be prepared for anything? should be totally unprepared for what you're about to hear. No, uh, this one, I think, different than other tunes on the record actually it's not made only out of water it was actually started off as a steel drum line that just felt very watery to me it started off being called josh's song josh plays steel drums on the tune and then this kind of water thing took shape and um you know drew kind of took a bunch of samples of water and and we kind of ran with that as a bed for these steel drums to sit on so that's kind of what it's about Thank you. 
Matmos and So Percussion performing Water off their album Treasure State. Um, there were five people performing, maybe eight instruments, uh, including the live hand and mug in a water pail in that piece. Now, you don't necessarily think it's important for people to know what's making every sound as they listen to this record. I love the idea that they could hear it for the first time twice, you know, that they might hear the music one way just as music, and then when they know that it's all made out of ceramics, they might think a different way about it. But did you choose, um, obviously, needles gives a pretty good sense of what's yeah. going on there. Water gives a pretty good sense of going on there. Did, did you decide to have these kind of generic titles for s- some reason? Tell the truth. <laughs> you know, we call... <laughs> Tell the truth, know. a man-made says. What's the truth? But yeah, forever, I mean, we were calling ceramics, you know, ceramic song. We were calling aluminum, aluminum song. Well, and with, with these songs that don't have words, after mm-hmm. all, to give them uh, titles runs the risk of seeming really pretentious. We were going to call the album The Void at the Heart of Being. You <laughs> well, <know>? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you decided not to go for that yeah. sellout commercial <laughs> Yeah, thing. we thought, the, the you cutting know, room floor is let's not cast pearls before <laughs> swine. Uh, well, Jason and Drew, uh, I want to thank you very, very much. Thank you for having us. If you want to see exactly how they turned houseplants into musical instruments, there is a video of them performing at pri.org/studio360. You can see and hear so percussion banging on things at venues like the Kennedy Center and Carnegie Hall. The most recent Matmos album is called Ultimate Care 2, and it was made entirely of sounds from a washing machine. Ben Mirren is a sound artist and a National Geographic explorer. In his work, he combines two of his passions, birdwatching and beatboxing. I started to incorporate birds into my beatbox routines because as a mimic, I was able to imitate certain bird calls. The American bittern. <coughs> the gadwall, which is like a... <coughs> the common eider, which is a wonderful duck that makes a very human-like sound. It goes, And as I started to share my love of birds with beatboxers, they just ate it up. They loved it. I had a debut performance at the American Beatbox Festival in 2014 where I improvised an entire set of walking around the forest as a bird guide. Like, I'm walking through the forest to look for some birds, birds, birds. There's one. There's two. It was totally off the cuff and people went nuts. Right now I am making a video of me performing on my loop stations and pattern sequencers. I sift through thousands of different tracks that I have on my computer of each bird recording. A lot of them come from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And I've listened to enough of them to find some that are actually in a single key. So I heard two notes. And so I started to build those together and then had a beat in mind. Meat. Meat. 
until I start to hear a composition assembling in my head. The epiphany was when I came to the trumpeter's swans, I started to hear this new melodic line that would go over the entire beat, and it just brought it to life. It was... All those notes are bird sounds. When you're a beatboxer, you can walk around and just create music on the fly. And Minecraft is about using beatbox to build a bridge to the natural world. That is bird watcher, beatboxer, sound artist, and world traveler Ben Mirren in our story produced by Daniel Gross. And this is Ben's brand new animal sound song, Okavango. We all become the mother of Okavango. And one last thing for a project we're working on about book lovers. What is a book you really love that was adapted into a movie you really do not love? Tell us why and what the filmmakers got wrong. Or tell us about a film you thought was a perfect adaptation of a book and maybe even better than the literary source and what, in that case, the filmmakers did that was so great. Either way, record a voice memo making your case succinctly and send that to incoming at studio360.org. That's incoming at studio360.org, and you might hear yourself on an upcoming episode. By the way, an easy way to make sure you hear all upcoming Studio 360 shows and podcasts is to subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, go ahead and write a quick review of the show. It helps other people discover Studio 360. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And this week, I'm sad to say goodbye to our technical director... Louis Mitchell. Louis joined this show in 2015, and speaking of creative sound, has been a true master of all kinds of audio magic. A lot of the original music you hear on this show, including what's playing under me right now, are Louis Mitchell compositions. He came to us from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and even though we still don't always entirely understand his version of English, one thing has always been abundantly clear. He cares a lot about this show and the people who make it. The feeling is mutual, mate. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. I think Germans do lapse into song. Yeah.
having to do with doors. When Lori Anderson listens to people talking, she sometimes hears music. When you come in and out of the door, they're talking to you like this in the monotone, and suddenly you're going, Peter and they begin to use these operatic voices. They're just happy to see you go. Performer and artist Lori Anderson, next time on Studio 360.